Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 270 of The Virtual Couch. I am your host, Tony Overbay, and today, prepare to go to school. You're going to learn a lot today, and I have no doubt about that. I have my associate, my friend, my colleague, Nate Christensen, back on live, because a few weeks ago, I re-ran an episode that Nate did on giving his 10 commandments of dealing with depression, and that went uh, absolutely fantastic. But in this episode, Nate was back in the studio, and as I shared in that best of Nate is my new associate, and associates all were formerly known as interns, and he and I talked very briefly about that in the beginning, but an intern or an associate in the therapy and counseling world is, is basically somebody who has received their master's degree in counseling, they've been seeing clients as part of their practicum or as their coursework, and now they're able to work out in the private practice setting or in a clinic or a nonprofit, but they have a clinical supervisor that they can turn to to discuss clients and cases and get advice or support, those kind of things. So I am Nate's clinical supervisor. So if you're looking for help and you like the, the, the cut of Nate's jib, um, just, just for fun, I love a good turn of phrase. And I use that one from time to time. The cut of one's jib, fun fact, it is a nautical reference in the 17th century. The shape of the jib sail was uh, often what identified a boat's nationality. So hence, uh, whether it was hostile or friendly, if you saw the Jolly Roger or the Skull and Crossbones coming at you in the middle of the ocean, well, most likely you'd report to the captain that, in fact, you did not like the cut of that ship's jib. But anyway, uh, that term was being used figuratively by, I don't know, I think it was like the 1800s to express a, a like or a dislike for somebody. But I like the cut of Nate's jib. So if you like what Nate is offering, you can contact him through the contact form on my website, TonyOverbay.com, to see about working with him. And we do reference my online pornography recovery course, The Path Back, a couple of times in this episode. So if you are interested in more, you can head over to PathBackRecovery.com to learn more about that. And before you hear the music come in, if you're struggling to find a counselor or a therapist in your area, but you're ready to get help processing or dealing with challenges in your life, then please do go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch for 10% off your first month services of online counseling. BetterHelp's intake process is, is really easy and they will have you speaking with or emailing with or texting with or Zooming with a therapist who can help you with a variety of challenges from anxiety and OCD, depression, those sort of things that you might be struggling with. And if you don't feel like you're connecting with your therapist, BetterHelp.com makes the process of switching a therapist very simple. So you owe it to yourself to, uh, at the very least, give counseling a try. And if doing it online is the way to make it happen for you, then by all means, go to BetterHelp.com slash virtual couch today. So let's get to this episode on talking about attachments and, and addictions, betrayal, trauma, all of those things with Nate Christensen. We're back. Yes. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Like, I'm seriously giddy and excited. Right. <laughs> we are sitting beside each other and uh, we are recording a podcast again. I ran the one of those best of episodes on the Ten Commandments of Depression. Right. And I don't know. Do, do you get people that are saying they heard you on the virtual couch and you better say yes right now? I think just people that I'm related to. Okay. <laughs> All right. And are they saying, man, you don't need that Tony guy. You, you need to venture out on your own. That guy's a boat anchor. Do they say that? No, they love you. Okay. But I was really excited. And Nate, you are now officially, your title is? Associate Professional Clinical Counselor. Which sounds really cool. It's probably sounds cooler than it actually is. <laughs> okay. Nate is working and, and I don't know why I was telling Nate before, why do I feel like I don't want to, Nate is working for me under, I, I don't like any of that, but 
the way the process works is when you are an associate professional clinical counselor, you must have a clinical supervisor. Yes. And that happens to be me. That's correct. Yeah. So Nate is in an office right beside mine, which I'm just giddy about. And I get to work with Nate. We get to see each other on a daily basis. And then the theory is that what every 10 clients you see in a week, I get to talk with you for an hour. Right. Right. Is that what it is? Well, so we'll have the, we have our normal supervision and then you have additional hours based on how many clients I see. So the more clients I get, the more we get to see each other. So I'm very excited about which now it sounds like I'm trying to do this shameless plug. Nate is, is open for business. Yes. So if you're in our area or actually doing telehealth or that sort of thing, please reach out through TonyOrbay.com. The contact, it's funny, I didn't even say or contact Nate directly, but it sounds like I would like all the control and I will filter through <laughs> what gets to Nate, but I'm not really saying that. So I don't know if you do have contact information right now or did just get through my website or what do you think? So I did set up the email. It's just a Gmail, Nate Christensen counseling at gmail.com. Okay. And are there like 500 ways to spell Christensen? Surely there are. Yeah. Right. So what is yours? A C-H-R-I-S-T-E-N-S-E-N. Oh, that seems like a pretty standard one, right? Could be. Okay. I'm not sure. I mean, people have spelled it so many different ways that I, I'm not even sure. What. So Nate and I wanted to get together again. And man, I want to get to the content, but I feel like I could go on and on. But Nate has joined me on my Pathback Recovery calls, these weekly group calls. And I love that group call. And so you've been on there for a couple of weeks now. And so because Nate has some background and experience we're going to talk about today on the podcast. And then he's also there because there was a time I had to go to my son's basketball game. Nate took over, which was really nice. (laughs) And uh, and Nate's interested in working with the population of men who, men or women that are struggling with addictions, compulsive sexual behavior, impulse control disorder, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So it's been really nice to have not only Nate here, but also with a lot of the skills that you bring to the table. So we want to talk about that today, right? Yes. What are we talking about? Well, I guess a quick intro. So I'm, this is like a second career for me, probably third actually, (laughs) but I'm in my early forties. So this isn't where I started in life, but it's kind of where I've ended up. I've struggled with like my own mental health issues for a long time. So I was really interested in in mental health. It's kind of that stereotype that, that every therapist has their own problems they're working out and that's why they're in the field. You know, it's funny. I would hear that and I was like, not me. I just, I just feel a, a love of this draw. And I think it was, I don't know, two, three years in, I'm like, Oh, that was exactly it. 100% it. Yeah. Eventually, you'll find some <laughs> skeletons in the closet you weren't oh, necessarily aware of. Yeah, there were quite a few. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So anyway, I recently completed my coursework at uh, Northwestern University. And thank you, Tony, for mm-hmm. accepting me as an associate. I'm super excited to yeah. learn under somebody that really knows the in and outs of the areas that I'm hoping to work with people in. Um, and if you've heard Nate on previous episodes, Nate and I, you know, we've had a nice friendship, a good relationship. And we would, when I would ever, I would talk to Nate, I mean, we'd get right into the, the, the thick of psychological theories and those sort of things. And that's why when you were in college or in getting your graduate degree, where I had you on a couple of those podcast episodes, and, and I feel like you are very comfortable with this. And so when you talk about it being a second or a third career, does this feel different already? Yeah, it does. Because any career job that you do, you come in usually with kind of a low knowledge base. Yeah. And so you're learning as you go. And and in grad school, you do a lot of work with people in a clinical setting before you graduate. But then you have the personal experience layer. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so I have issues. I, I was diagnosed in my early 20s with anxiety disorder, also with depressive disorder. I I think the most accurate term now in the DSM is major depressive disorder. And that's something that's been on and off 
the anxiety feels like it's always there. So it's more of a management thing. Mm -hmm. And then actually just a few years ago, I went down the road to the Amen clinic down in the Bay area. And, uh, cause I was still having some questions, what's going on. And so they had me take a bunch of assessments and did a brain scan and congratulations. You have ADHD. Welcome to the club. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> Very excited to be in it. <laughs> Oh, and you know what? That's funny. I forget that you have been to the Amen Clinic because I, I talk about that constantly. I mean, that brain scan technology mm -hmm. is fascinating. It is. It's amazing. And, and I love the fact that you came away from that with the this brand new, exciting diagnosis because I, it was what led me down my own path was working with a client that got a brain scan and he showed the scan and this Dr. Amina there had circled an area of the brain and said, basically, there's your ADHD. Yeah. And I just thought that is fascinating yeah. as then I thought about eight other things at the same time. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So that's my, well, and I guess the other issue that we will talk more about mm -hmm. is I've struggled with addiction. And so thankfully, like things have really come together for me in the last couple of years. I've been able to, to really move past these addictions and experience sobriety for the first time in, you know, 20 plus years. Wow. And uh, my mental health is, is finally in, in a really solid place. And, and so that's why I'm excited to be here and do this. It's definitely something that I'm, I know you're passionate about. Yeah. I feel really passionate about. Yeah. And I feel like that's the thing where I was going there too, of does this feel different now? And I, I it's one of those, I didn't realize what I didn't realize in my previous career yeah. in computer software that it felt more like I'm checking a box and I'm just doing a thing. And now this is where, man, I love it. And, and I'm, I can't wait to work with clients and, and come to work. And if you are struggling with uh, any of the things that Nate's talking about and are thinking about seeing a therapist, I really would love for you to keep your um, eyes and ears open or mind open as you hear Nate, because I feel like one of the things that we talk about often is you need to have a good fit with your therapist. And, and I find that a lot of people that will resonate with something Maybe for the first time they're hearing it on a podcast and, and I really want the people that are listening to take that as a cue to reach out and, and maybe get some help. And if it's Nate or whoever it is. Yeah. Okay. Let's deep dive into where are we going today? Yeah. So I brought in some material, which was actually my capstone project and my capstone project was on attachment theory and how attachment theory intersects with the idea of addiction. And I was particularly looking at compulsive sexual behavior. I don't know how much you've talked on your podcast. Within the clinical world, there's mm -hmm. a lot of debate going on about whether or not sexual behavior should be classified as an addiction. That was okay. Yes. And uh, it's funny. I want to, you go first because I will, I do a little bit with this, okay. but, and it's interesting and, and man, let me continue to make it about myself. But when I even started the virtual couch, it was the talk about my path back pornography recovery program. Mm -hmm. And, but then I realized quickly, I didn't want to be pigeonholed into just talking about it, but mm -hmm. I've swung so far to the other side that I, I don't talk about it enough. So yeah. So talk about that. Is it an addiction or? So I don't know. <laughs> um, getting into my own past and my own issues, I've had multiple, like truly what are considered addictions. And conquering those were a big challenge. But I can tell you, looking specifically at pornography, that felt every bit the addiction that any of the other addictions do. And I understand that from a clinical setting, especially for sex therapists, they want to keep that window open. A lot of what I read when I was putting together my paper was they weren't ready to say it was an addiction. And it almost sounds like when you read differing opinions that different people in that same field could feel very different about it, depending on who you talk to. Yeah. And, and I totally agree. And I have, so where I've gone with this is, 
and I've even been very clear about now calling my pathback program a pornography recovery program yeah. instead of a pornography addiction program. Yeah. But I'm, I want to meet my client wherever they're at. So mm-hmm. some people feel like that label of addiction is really heavy and it's shaming and which can even make things worse. But I've also found people that they say, no, I need to know that this is a thing yeah. in order for me to feel like I can get help for it. But lately I've been talking a lot about the concept of impulse and compulsion and, and just simply when you look at compulsive sexual behavior or impulse control disorder, that in, in a nutshell, a compulsion is premeditated and then an impulse is not. And right. so I'll talk often about you can, especially with things like turn into pornography as a coping mechanism, that people can get the compulsion maybe under control, so to speak. And then they can still find themselves, the, the acronym HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and maybe fall prey to an impulse and then act out, relapse, have a setback, and then beat themselves up. And sometimes I feel like that, you know, the brain's just waiting for that so it can jump back on and say, okay, can we start doing this again? Can we get the dopamine fix and that sort of thing? But what I love is that your paper and you, though, really dig deeper and look at the attachment uh, piece to that. Yes. Okay. So that's why I'm excited uh, to talk about that because again, the recovery programs or, or those sort of things are, are wonderful, but I really do believe that if you want to, if you want to get to the core of this, this is where a good, a really good counselor therapist is going to be worth their weight in gold because it's, it's not just about when I feel triggered, I do some push ups or I sing a song or that sort of thing. We got to figure out what are some of those unmet needs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And that's, I think one of the pieces I really like about the path back is it gives you like a clear direction of things that you can not only explore within yourself, the self-awareness piece, but also the tasks that you can do in order to, they're obviously based on values and things like that to to get you towards going towards a direction that that you really want to be in. I'm going to commit the cardinal sin right now and quote something that I can't, (laughs) that I don't know who said it. I, I found it when I was writing my paper and I lost it and I couldn't find it again, but I know what they said. It was in a research paper and okay. it was beautiful. Okay. And they said, and because what I was doing at that point is I was researching how attachment relates to addiction generally, not necessarily just compulsive sexual behavior, but just addiction generally. And what this researcher said was people don't have an addiction problem. They have an attachment problem. Mm, okay. And I thought, holy cow, okay, what, there's so much here. What am I going? I was just getting into that rabbit hole. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that if you, in, in your Oh, work. okay. So that is awesome. I wanted to, and quick 80, I wanted to say, Nate, I said that. Oh, but, okay. but I, I mean, <laughs> he threw his pen at me. Oh. <laughs> but I really didn't say that. But, but I feel like that. So, I, and I, this is not supposed to be an ad for the path back, I promise, but I can make it an ad for my book. No, uh, yeah. but, but I feel like this is the part where I really feel like when I started working in this area, that it was more about the behavioral mechanisms mm-hmm. to overcome turning to pornography. So it was, you know, when you have a thought, you just need to do this or you just need to do this. And I was trained a little bit in that. And then I felt, man, that is just not holding water. Yeah. And so I, I, what I call these five voids that when people feel like they aren't connected in their parenting or their marriage or their faith or their health or their career, that then they turn to a coping mechanism. So yeah. like pornography. Yeah. So then I feel like then when you start looking at how to become a better parent or a and better in your relationship or your career, or, then now all of a sudden at the core of those is attachment, yeah. uh, which is right of how do I show up to get my needs met? And then we got some nice abandonment side issues there. I love everything about what you're talking about. 
but back to you. <laughs> yeah, no. So attachment is super fascinating. There's a few different ways to view attachment. I, I divided it as simply as possible. There are different terms that people use. So when I broke attachment up, I had secure attachment, which is the positive attachment that we want everyone to experience. So you're, you hopefully had a, a good childhood with parents that were attentive, that help you ma- help meet your needs that maybe denied you some things that you shouldn't need because also part of attachment is understanding boundaries and and differentiation, which is the idea that this is where I start and end and where you begin. So we're not overlapping too much. Then we get into the other parts of attachment, which this is where problems start to come up. The one is defined or, or known as anxious attachment, one is known as avoidant attachment, and the other is sometimes called avoidant, anxious, anxious avoidant, or mixed attachment, and it's some combination of the, the two. And what we tend to see is people with each of these attachment styles often have similar experiences at some point in their life, and often when they're young. So the program that Northwestern that I went through was psychodynamic. And what that means is we're highly focused on what happens in early childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. I know you're really big into ACT and I love ACT. But what's funny though, you say this is uh it is funny because I remember, yeah, and I do love ACT and bring yourself back to present and those sort of things and turn toward your values, but those are all determined by your childhood experiences. Right. And, and, and I remember I was going to come out and be the therapist that was going to just deal with the present until you literally start working with clients and then it's, oh, okay. Yeah, we got to go back to the past. Yeah, and I to me, act is like the if you're going to make act a Disney movie, it's Frozen because it's let it go. Yeah, <laughs> you have an emotion show up and then you just kind of let it go. But there's some beauty to that yeah. because even in in work as a psychodynamic uh, therapist, when you're working with someone and they're stuck in something about their past that they can't change, yeah. and they also can't let it go, they're not able to progress. No, and, and that's a very good point because I do feel like, uh, and I think my wife has brought great awareness to me where I do maybe because I love acts so much and I've seen it change people's lives that then where I'm saying, oh, it's normal to have that thought or feeling or emotion. And that's cool, right? So mm-hmm. now just make room for it, acknowledge it, don't fuse to it, move toward value-based goal, and in essence, let it go. And I do feel like people are like, yeah. And then they're like, but what if I can't? Right. And so then right. it's now here comes back to attachment, psychodynamic. We've got to figure this out. Right. Okay. So with attachment theory, I really identify strongly with anxious attachments. So anxious attachments come typically when a young person doesn't have consistency from their primary caregivers. And by consistency, what I mean, because no parent is perfect. Right. So what you have is you have parents that are maybe with one hand loving you and with another hand, maybe acting violent towards you. So what you end up having is they don't know if they're coming or going with their parent. Now that's not to say that parents always have to be perfect, Yeah. but parents that are better at apologizing when they do something wrong, that are better at changing and, and allowing children to see them change parents that are, are better at acknowledging their faults. Those seem to help with those kind of attachment wounds. Parents that are, this is your fault. I'm only doing this because of you. And then five minutes later, they're loving on them like it never happened and it never gets brought up. Sometimes that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about more of the... the Can I go lay down on the couch while you do this right now? (laughs) Because I've always identified as anxious attachment as well. And then I feel like when that shows up into adulthood, it really... I love how you said it's like, I really don't know if I'm coming or going or where I stand. Yeah. And so then if I feel like my wife is... If something's off, then I'm like, I it must be me. Right, right. So we internalize things. Sometimes what you see is a 
pattern with people with anxious attachment. And it's it, it, this is not always true, but if you think of attachment on a spectrum, on one end, someone being highly anxiously attached, and on the other one, some someone not being anxiously attached at all. The closer you get to the end of the spectrum where someone is highly anxiously attached, you tend to see more and more people with a low self-image, mm. and you tend to see people that are seeking, they have more of a positive world or hopeful worldview, hopeful that the world can help the, help tell them they're okay. Oh, okay. So can you see the tears in my eyes as you're saying this? Name? <laughs> Are they typically about five foot eight bald? Uh, I mean, is that, no. well, I mean, I'm six foot and bald. So okay. I mean, <laughs> anywhere between there. Okay. Yeah. So that's typically what we'd see from people that are anxiously attached, shifting over to people that have more of an avoidant attachment. Typically what you'd see with people that are avoidantly attached is they would come from childhood homes where they didn't, they were neglected. They weren't necessarily given much attention. And sometimes they're very independent, but they really struggle with incorporating emotion because no one really trained them. They never really learned. They never really saw, or maybe they just saw at a distance. And when they get older, they struggle to know what to do with any kind of emotion. emotion. Okay. If you look again on the spectrum example, someone that's very far to the, to that attachment of being avoidant versus the other side being not very avoidant. Someone that's very, very avoidant in, in their attachment might resemble someone that you could classify as a narcissist. Okay. They really struggle to hear when anyone it offers any kind of criticism, even if it's constructive and positive. They, they have a difficult time taking responsibility. They tend to just do their own thing and feel like they're fine. They have more of a positive, like maybe even over accounting for, for what they actually are more really grandiose, perhaps. Yes. Yes. So a really high positive sense of self and they tend to view the world in a negative way. So they're like, everything that's wrong in the world is outside of me. I'm good. And I can give you a perfect example of this. Hopefully my wife will forgive me this because she was telling me this story. (laughs) So she has someone that's, that, that that's been in her life for a long time. And this person did something that she didn't love. And so she sent them an email and let them know, Hey, this is what happened. And I don't think this is I'd rather trying to smooth the situation out, share how she felt while also getting to see if the person was willing to maybe change. So it didn't happen again in the future. And the person's response to her was, I don't make mistakes. Boy. So she was like, okay, that person just shut the conversation yeah. down and they're not even willing to consider the fact that they may have done something and maybe not even intentionally, right. but they did something that was problematic for someone else. The sad part when you get into these highly emotionally attached people is because they have such a hard time with self-awareness because they're, they struggle with that emotional component mm-hmm. of feeling like there's something wrong with them. Like that's, that's their strategy. Yeah. I'm not going to allow anything to tell in the world to tell me there's anything wrong with me. They really have a difficult time improving themselves in certain areas because they just don't feel like there's anything wrong. So they take no accountability. And what's fascinating. So I I talk about gaslighting often. Mm -hmm. And I read once that gaslighting is a childhood defense mechanism in in childhood. If I admit that anything is wrong, then I may be booted out of my home. And there's abandonment and abandonment equals death. And so I will. And so when that pattern has always Oh, it literally always been there of, I'm not going to, I'm not going to admit to anything. Then I learned to stall. I learned to turn it back around on somebody. I learned to get uh, overly emotional so that I can get out of a situation. Yeah. I learned to control it with anger, mm-hmm. but anything other than take responsibility. Right. So I oh, appreciate it. Yeah. 
So anyway, and then the mixed attachment style is people who vacillate between the avoidant piece and the anxious piece. Generally speaking, those are considered relatively rare, like 5 to 10% of the population, and it's the hardest to try and, and treat. But th- those are all areas that relate to compulsive sexual behavior. People with anxious attachment are more likely to engage in sexual behavior with multiple partners okay. because they're constantly worried that somebody's going to drop off. So they've got like plenty in their back pocket. People that are avoidant are more likely to engage in paid sex or in pornography. They want control of the relationship. And then obviously people that are mixed are going back and forth. So it may not look like obviously one or the other. It might be all of the above that that they're engaging in. So that takes us back to the compulsive sexual behavior piece. So my paper, which, and, and this is where it becomes a very tough sell. My paper was... If someone is in a relationship and they are discovered, what then does do both parties do if they want to try and continue the relationship? Because what you have is you have a broken attachment already in one party. Yeah. Then you now have a damaged attachment and betrayal trauma in the other party that just discovered this. So how do you fix that? Yeah. So I'll, I'll throw this at you real quick. What do you do in this kind of a situation? Well, and so this is where I have, I go back to those, identifying those voids. And then in this scenario, so someone is definitely going to not feel uh, connected in their marriage. Yes. And so I, and I don't know if you, did you, you didn't, in your program, there wasn't a lot of couples. No. So clinical counselors are are more specific to individuals. Okay. So I can actually see couples because I'm working under a marriage and family therapist, you, and you can give me supervision on that. But if I were to not take additional coursework and not get enough hours under you and get licensed as a clinical counselor, state of California will not allow me to see couples. Okay. So there are some restrictions. If I want to do that, then I have to go on. So, and, and I, and it's funny because I know when we were talking earlier, I wasn't necessarily aware of that, but I even feel, and it's funny because I feel like the couples therapy training that I received, even as a marriage and family therapist and just being authentic and, and real and stuff, I felt like it was more of just this reflective listening kind of a piece. Yeah. And, and the reason I say that is because I feel like bringing reflective listening into this betrayal, trauma, anxious attachment issue. And I didn't know early on in my career at the time is not fun. That's right. Because it's really saying, okay, what do you hear this person saying? All right. Can you reflect that back? What do you hear this person saying? And I feel like you would sit back and say, so, all right, you guys, how about you fix that? And so I, in, in part of my own work, I found EFT emotionally focused therapy, Mm -hmm. which is uh, no surprise based on attachment. Right. And, and, And it is a framework. So when you're saying, okay, you throw it back and what do I do with it? It's so important. I feel like to have a framework because the people are the anxious attachment wants the wants the validation of the therapist as well. Right. And then the avoidant attachment is probably feeling like there's, well, I can't trust anybody. And I've right. heard that before. I can't even trust this therapist. So, right. and so sometimes that can, they can really hunker down in their bunker mm-hmm. and then, and the anxious attachment now naturally is going to try to go and rescue, but then also then feel like this lack of validation when that mm-hmm. person isn't responding. Right. And then the therapist is sitting there saying, okay, I'm not the referee. And so this framework of EFT is beautiful and I, I talk often, that's the basis of my magnetic marriage course and mm-hmm. with these four pillars of a connected conversation. And so I feel like it's imperative that you find a, a framework to operate from because you, it's almost like you have to get people back on to the goal of being heard, not to resolve. 
And then you will watch attachment and abandonment wounds come up like crazy. Yeah. 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 And, and the other thing that I thought was important with this is it's important for couples to understand their partner's attachment style. Because if you have someone that's say avoidant and they're trying to work on that, about the worst thing you can do is constantly chase them. That's going to push them further away. So you have to find a way where you're, you're able to give them space, but you're still connecting regularly. If someone is anxiously attached, but the worst thing you can do is give them tons of space. Absolutely. Because they're just going to feel more and more like you have to understand, like from an anxious attachment, like standpoint, if someone's giving you space, what they're communicating to you is they don't want to be around you. Which then that's where, man, so good. Nate, I had had an episode that I think I just reran it recently with Jennifer Finless and Fife, where I threw out that I really felt like I had cracked some code and in, in finding a, a pattern of a lot of the men I was working with had that anxious attachment style and then add to that maybe a nice love language of uh, words of affirmation and physical touch. Sure. And a lot of the women, then I was, I felt like, man, I'm identifying that there's a lot of avoidant attachment mm-hmm. and then a lot of love language of quality time and acts of service. And then I felt like a lot of that, that led to is a guy feeling like seeing his wife withdrawn and then wanting to go pursue and then when she doesn't respond, he's saying, okay, you know, are you, are we good? And if she's saying, yeah, we're fine. And then it's 10 minutes later, she's not jumping up and down and telling him he's awesome and wanting to have sex with him. Then he's saying, man, are you sure? Is this me or are we sure you're okay? And then I, and then here comes, I, I believe in that middle, it's exactly what you're saying. Psychological reactance of that instant negative reaction of being told what to do. So I feel like the guy is basically saying, look, validate me. Right. And, and I feel like that is what drives that avoidant attachment even further away. Mm-hmm. And then they are both just so far away from each other. And then I feel like, okay, now they're in their bunkers and who's going to come out first. And I do wonder, and I'm having a little bit of an aha moment thanks to you right now. So then would it be safe to say that anxious attachment when given that space, then that's where that maybe that impulsive behavior may kick in. Yes. And so this is the fascinating thing about pornography. Covenant Eyes, who produces some software to Mm -hmm. help people, has a pretty big white paper. And I was reviewing it not long ago. And they talked about one of the one of the struggles with people that that compulsively use pornography is what they're viewing is someone in the vast majority of cases that is always available for sex. Yeah. And then they start to be like, well, why can't I have that? Well, you now have an unrealistic expectation because you've conditioned yourself over who knows how many years of, of pornography or whatever it may be into believing that that is what a relationship is when it's not. Yeah. No. And, and oh, it's so funny that you say that because I, I, I have a, a lot of the men that I do work with when you really start to do a, a bit of an assessment around the type of pornography that they're viewing that then they almost get emotional or there's a soft side of them that says, man, I just, no, I'm, I'm watching, I'm, I'm looking at it. It's really about the connection or about the desire or about the, and so to them, I think that speaks to what you're saying where they're feeling like, no, this is all I need. If I just had this, I'd be fine. Well, and, and there's a whole nother set of issues oh. behind if I just had this, Absolutely. I'd be fine because yes. every time people get what they want and they discover that they're not fine. Right. Uh, yeah. If I only had the six pack abs, right. if I had the cool car, <laughs> if I had the hair plugs, I'm just kidding. Right. right. Yeah. Well, and yeah, that's the beauty of the, the, the human condition, which is we're never really satisfied right. unless we train ourselves to be satisfied, yes. which takes a lot of work. Yeah. And, and so for me, this was all fascinating. And the reason, again, going back to the reason why this all started was was the reason I was able to finally kick this was I met my now wife and she was so open and she was understanding and she was non-judgmental. And it got to me to a place where all of a sudden I didn't need this other stuff anymore because I had 
a, a real person. There was a, a woman whose paper I quoted a few times. Her name was Annabelle Bugatti. And her dissertation in 2019, I think it was, was on what she called competing attachments. And Sue Johnson, who pioneered EFT, was a big part of her, her putting okay. this together. And what she <clears throat> what she described is in, in life, we have a lot of different things we attach to. We attach to people. We attach to addictions. We attach to hobbies. We might attach to video games. I mean, we're attaching to all sorts of things. And what her whole premise was is, are we giving the time to the most important attachments? Are we willing to acknowledge what attachments mean the most to us and then give them the appropriate time? Because we might say, my most important attachment is my wife, and then go spend five hours playing video games. Yes. Well, that's, you're saying one thing, but you're doing another. What can we do to bring awareness to what you're saying is your actual value and then get you to that place where you're actually behaving that way? Mm -hmm. What I really like about that is you're, you're almost then asking your spouse to validate a version of you that you believe is accurate. Right. But they don't. And I've got a quote by, this is by Schnark, David Schnark from Passionate Marriage. He's saying, invariably poorly differentiated people hold on to a part of themselves that constructed the distorted self-portrait. So they demand that their partner understand them in part because they really don't understand themselves. <clears throat> they feel understood, accepted, and validated when their partner sees them the way they picture themselves. Mm-hmm. And then he says their partner's refusal to see them the way that they want to be seen is upsetting, but the problem isn't a failure to communicate. Their spouse can't understand them the way they demand because they view their own behavior and the details of their life differently than their partner does. And then that discrepancy challenges their inaccurate picture of themselves, which they have a difficulty maintaining to begin with. And all of a sudden, I think that can lead to that feeling of not feeling attached. Right. And, and I love that because that also goes back again to that piece that I'll, that I'll mention is a big part of your path back program, which is increasing self-awareness. Yeah. Like you're saying, or you believe one thing about yourself, but are you actually doing the things to support that belief? Yeah. And so my paper really ended in, in the admission that the person, some people will call it the resolute spouse, the person that has been faithful and has done everything that they could do to support the marriage. Obviously, no one's perfect, but, you know, tried to be there. Then discovers this betrayal. Yeah. And they have their own now damage, their own attachment damage. Now what you have is somebody who was probably already damaged in the, within their attachment, more than likely because of childhood experiences. Now you have someone that's damaged in their primary relationship because of that person. And like you mentioned before, with who's going to come out of the foxhole first. Yeah. Now we have this game of chicken where it's like, who's in my, in my thought press process being the former addict, like you're the one that's, you caused the problem here, mm-hmm. right? But at the same time, you still have other damage. That's not your, your spouse's fault. And I don't know who you want to blame that on. Maybe your parents' fault, maybe your own <laughs> fault. Maybe there's enough blame to go around for everybody. Sure. But the spouse is left picking up the pieces. And how fair is that? that you, you can imagine how that person feels. It's like, I didn't create this mess, but I'm now in the middle of it. So that's ultimately why I I felt like this was an interesting path to go down because I wanted to try and see, well, if someone's like, you know what, I didn't create this mess, but I want to try and, and do what I can to fix this. How can we do that? And attachment made the most sense, working mm-hmm. on attachment. For me, when people have damage in their relationship due to compulsive sexual behavior, I'm a big believer that, that they really need some kind of couple's instruction mm-hmm. or therapy because they have to relearn some of these attachment styles or, or reestablish that secure attachment that's so important to overall healthy living. 
you know, and I wonder, tell me if you had this experience in grad school of when you would say, here's my treatment plan for some fictitious uh, person or couple mm-hmm. that it was like, okay, each one of the individuals needs therapy. They need couples therapy. They need the therapy with their animal. They need therapy with their whatever. <laughs> right. and, and then you get in the real world and it's okay. That's expensive and, yes. and time consuming. And, yes. But to your point, which I really like is as a couples therapist and as someone who works with individuals struggling with compulsive behaviors, man, in a perfect world, you really do need both because you, you have to figure out your own attachment wounds Mm -hmm. to be able to show up and then not have those often play out in a couples therapy setting. Yeah. Now I feel like a good couples therapist can be very aware of that. And that's why, again, I feel like a framework is so important, but I really like what you said about the person who let's the, the betrayer will say in the scenario mm-hmm. that then the betrayed all of a sudden does say, wait, I, this isn't about me. Even right. if there is, there was some attachment wound issues they weren't even aware of. Cause then I feel like sometimes the betrayer will say, well, technically there's a little bit that I think it is, but right. they're not, a, if they say that at that point, that is not going to go well. Right. So yeah. I feel like that's some of the things that need to be navigated in a couple's therapy setting, but I, that wasn't even where I was going. So I, I got a little distracted there, but so that's the point where I feel like at times, I love what you said about the guy coming out of his foxhole, the anxious attachment person, it, and now the betrayed wants to say, Hey, I need you to feel how bad this hurts for me. Yeah. And, and so you've got the anxious attachment person saying, Okay, I'm going to try this because I, I did it. You're right. Mm -hmm. And I want to repair this attachment because I'm an anxious attachment to begin with. Mm -hmm. But now when they just start feeling that anger, it's exactly what you just said, right? They're not now they got all their own attachment wounds where now they just want to go disappear again, which now you've got the person with the the avoidant attachment that's all fine. Leave. Right. Oh man. What do you do, do, Nate? So. Obviously, there's no one answer that yeah. works for I was, everyone. I was kind of, t- I mean, I feel yeah. bad. I threw that. You're like, what? he's looking at me. He's mouthing me. He did like a uh, cross his neck Why thing. Why do like, that to me? Right. No, because I feel like I do know. I really feel like yeah. it, it is what I love about. So funny. A shameless plug of my magnetic marriage course, because it's, it's going so well because it, it, you have to have a framework and the goal at first is to be heard. Yes. It's not to resolve. And I feel like that is so hard because people want to just let me get really angry at you and you take it. And then you apologize and then, and they almost feel like, and then we'll be okay. Mm-hmm. But now all of a sudden with this kind of awareness, now there's th- these triggers that pop up mm-hmm. and now people want to go back and say, well, wait a minute, you said this. And now I feel like I have to go back and look at our entire marriage and I have mm-hmm. to go make sense of everything. And the anxious attachment is saying, okay, I, I need to answer all these questions. I need to make sense of things, but they're there. I think this is an answer. And then, well, that, that doesn't go along with what you said before. And now you just, you're in the weeds with even more trauma, right? Right. I, I guess if someone was like, what's the cheapest way you could, you could do this. Uh, it, if you had to do therapy with somebody, I'd say, probably the couple should get therapy yeah, absolutely. and there's support groups for both the both partners yeah. that could could go to and that's probably reasonable for some people in a perfect world like you say everybody's getting therapy yeah lots of therapy yeah cost is no option time yeah. is open and, yeah yeah but and, and i feel like yeah we're making fun of that but i feel like I, we I, it's almost us saying we acknowledge the fact that i hope that people that are hearing this probably found themselves in some portion of whether it's what their attachment style was or when they do try to show up to mm-hmm. say, okay, I want to work on this. And, and then when they're met with that uh, anger, which is, I understand, yeah. but then they're going to want to go back into the foxhole and say, you know what, I'll come out when you're, when you can be more calm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you want me to be calm. You know, well, you should have never done this thing. Right. And that's where I feel like, man, you need structure. Yeah. And that comes from the training that you get with the professional because they're going to tell you, you can be angry all you want. If you show him that anger, you're more likely, it's more likely that he will go and do that again. Now, that's not your fault. He's responsible for his actions. 
but what is it? What is the goal? And I think, again, we're getting back to making a value-based goals and, and then deciding what actions will get us to that point. Mm-hmm. No, and is, and, and maybe I'll, I know we're going to wrap up here, but yeah. I, maybe I, I'll throw a cliche or two out here, but they are so true is that I feel like it is really important to get some, I don't know, ground under your tires mm-hmm. before you do make big decisions, especially yeah. when this happens, because it's exactly what you're talking about, Nate, those attachment wounds come out and they come out strong. Mm -hmm. And so it's like this immediate, you betray me. Let me just go ahead and make this incredibly difficult for you. So you'll just go ahead and get the heck out. Right. And and then to the anxious attachment at times, it's look, I want to do this, but you need to be nice. But Mm -hmm. there's so it, it gets so complicated. So I'm always a big fan of saying, all right, let's yeah, go get help. Try to not make any big decisions until you can really get something, some help in place and, and know that. And I, I didn't, do you have a Disney movie for what psychodynamic is? Cause I've been saying that. You know, oh, and, and, I have no idea. Oh, come on. Cause in <laughs> yeah, the act, like the let it go. And it's, that's really funny. It is, but I feel like it is once you get the tools, the structure, the framework in place, it's absolutely, and I like that you said, it's absolutely, of course, you're going to feel angry. If you didn't, mm-hmm. that would be crazy. Mm-hmm. And of course, the person who um, did the betrayal is going to feel sad and going to feel hopeless and going to feel like abandonment and all those things. If, if you didn't, that would be crazy. Right. But then it's learning what to do with that, learning how to, you know, even invite those feelings to come along with you to couples therapy Mm -hmm. and then make room expansion, make room for them and then get into a good framework with the goal for a little while, being able to just to be able to express yourself and uh, and to be heard. And I mean, it's my podcast. I have to do this. But so then plug in the magnetic marriage course, because I've got these four pillars that I really feel are gold. They're based Mm -hmm. off of EFT. And the first one is to assume good intentions. It Mm -hmm. sounds overly simplistic. But if the partner who's been betrayed is saying, I am so angry, I don't know if I can stay in this relationship. That's a hard one to say. I have to assume good intentions. But I have to understand that right then, they, that's the only way they feel like they can get some control back or they can Mm -hmm. feel heard. Mm -hmm. And then that second pillar, you can't say you're, you can't put the message you're wrong. But if that betrayer says, well, that's ridiculous. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. No, that's how they feel. You can't put out that message. They're wrong. And then pillar three, ask questions before you make comments, before you say, well, look, I need you to calm down and then I'll be willing to listen. Mm -hmm. It's okay. Tell me, tell me more. Tell tell me what you're feeling and and help me see my blind spots. And then that pillar four is and then that person cannot go into their bunker. They can't assume good intentions, not say the other person's wrong, ask questions. But then the pillar four is they can't say, okay, I guess I'll just, I guess I'll just never have an opinion again. Mm-hmm. I'll just never have a voice because they're going into victim mode right. now wanting that person to come rescue them. Yep. Ooh, get off my soapbox. I like that. Okay. I but like that. we have so much more to record, Nate. Like yeah. this feels so good. Yeah. There's a lot here. The boys are back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A little sneak preview for anybody who's been here, who is still listening. And I hope that lots of people are talk about like your podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah. So my wife is actually in a program to become a marriage and family therapist. And I have just incredible respect for her, especially after what she helped me go through. Mm -hmm. And so our intention is to start a podcast and hopefully drop our first episode next week or maybe the week after. And that'll be something that'll apparently be on the the virtual virtual couch couch network, Network. the virtual couch podcast network. You hear, uh, you heard it here, folks. But that, yeah, that one, I've got a new podcast about waking up to narcissism. I've got a podcast based off of the path back that's coming up that you're going to be a part of. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't know if I had told that, uh, mentioned that to you yet. You did. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) But, and then if anybody didn't really feel like they are, they like what they're hearing. And I don't mean that to sound like such a, a sales pitch, but man, I'm so excited to have Nate here. And yeah, in his forties, got some road under your tires, been through a lot, career changes, relationships, talking about addiction and has put this all together. 
then, you know, your shingle is up, you're open for mm-hmm. business. So yeah. uh, reach out through me. And if I don't want to take you, then I'll send you over to Nate. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. Uh, Nate, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank and you, this was, it really does feel good to be back. And man, you sounded smart two years ago when we recorded but I'm a little bit intimidated now. Oh, stop. Okay. I, I appreciate everything, man. I really do. All right. Okay. Hey, everybody. We'll see you next time on The Virtual Couch. Compressed emotions flying past Our heads and out the other end The pressures of the daily grind It's wonderful Elastic waste and rubber I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter most Explore.